Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Well, good morning to you all. For the folks on the internet, let me explain what has happened. Someday people listening to our series from the book of Revelation will worry that there is a week missing. What actually happened last week was that we kept up with our regular tradition of spending the last Sunday of the year looking back over the year, and members of the congregation got to share how God has been faithful to them in bringing them through yet another year. However, I was not able to be here and be part of it. Micah tells me that it all went very well, but I was felled by the virus that's going around. So there was no recording of last week, so you missed nothing if you're listening to the Revelation series. But if we were continuing with the Revelation series, this morning we would be talking about the dead church. And that's no way to start a new year. Today is January 2nd, 2022. God has faithfully gotten us through the last two COVID years when churches were closing right and left and when uh, Christianity struggled against the uh, encroachment of the government all over the world and when churches had to really defend their ability and their right to gather and worship God together. And yet, two years into the COVID thing, here we are. We're still here. We're still worshiping God. We're still reading his word. He's been so faithful to us that I just can't imagine starting this new year by talking about the dead church. So next week, we'll talk about the dead church. I instead intend to start this year By telling you what you already know, I'm not going to tell you anything new this morning. I'm going to tell you stuff that you know, and I want to draw it to your remembrance so that we can remember how good God has been to us and so that we can remember that it is the sovereignty of God that has allowed us to endure these past 20 years so that we are still standing and still proclaiming the word of God. And then I'm going to finish by reminding you of something that I hope you never forget. We're going to start this morning by talking about the primary theological stance for which GCA exists. We started GCA some 20 years ago as a public church. It began as a Bible study in my living room. And there were no Sovereign Grace churches anywhere in Rutherford County at the time. And so I am one of those people who says, rather than curse the darkness, light a candle. Amen. 
and don't criticize if you're not willing to get out there and do it yourself. And so we began a Bible study in my house, and then eventually we were able to buy this land and this building. And we put a sign out front. Originally, it was just a banner that we hung out front, proclaiming to everybody who drove by us that the sovereign grace of God was preached here, that we hold to sovereign grace theology. And what we mean by that is simply God is sovereign and salvation is a result of grace. Salvation cannot be the result of anything except grace, Mm -hmm. especially if you know yourself anywhere near as well as I know me. I know that I have already made too big a mess of this life to think that I'm going to be able to earn my way into God's good favor. God is going to have to be gracious to me because I'm 66 now. So it's a little late for me to think that now I'm going to get busy and clean me up. Now I'm going to get busy and be good. In fact, most of the lack of sin in my life now is really just a result of my age and the fact that I just can't do the things I used to do. I can't take any credit for it. I can't say, well, I got smart, I cleaned me up, I fixed me, and God's going to accept me on the basis of me. No, salvation has to be as a result of God's sovereign grace. So let's start by talking about what that means. What does it mean when I say God is sovereign? Probably the best definition for God's absolute sovereignty that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Micah said to me just before I came up here, what verse are you going to be concentrating on this morning? And I said, oh, lots of them. So if you want to keep up with me, there's going to be a lot of flipping, or you can just listen and just absorb what the Bible actually says about God and his sovereignty. Because I am counting on the sovereignty of God to get us through this coming year the same way that he has faithfully gotten us through all these years before this. Psalm 115, the first three verses, David writes, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your own name give glory because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. And why should the nations... The Gentiles, the Goyim, the unbelievers, why should the nations say, where now is their God? (laughs) David's answer is, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Tattoo that to your memory. Write it on your forehead. Scratch it on the walls of your house. Our God is in the heavens. And he does whatever he pleases. And if David can define God that way, if he can say, our God is the God who does whatever he's pleased to do, then you don't need a better definition for sovereignty than that. He's the God who does all his own good pleasure whenever he wants, wherever he wants, with whoever he wants. And he doesn't do what he doesn't want to do. He only does those things that bring him the greatest pleasure. Mm 
and he can, because he's all powerful, do whatever he wants to do. So there's our first definition for sovereignty. Now that should not be new to you. You should know that. You should know that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Remember that? Mm -hmm. You've heard it before. Remember that? Yes. Yes. I'm going to ask you that a lot this morning. Remember that? Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6 says, For I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is great and that our Lord is above all gods. And whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And then people will say, yes, but only within some kind of limited sphere, right? No, David goes on and says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. Mm. That's pretty much everywhere. He didn't leave anything out. And he said, God does whatever he pleases everywhere, all the time, regardless of what it is. It is God who is doing his own good pleasure. Proverbs 16.33, you should all know this, the lot is cast into the lap, a seemingly small arbitrary thing, and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So God is intimately involved in the details of life. There's nothing so small that God is not involved in it and aware of it. You should know that. You remember that? Mm -hmm. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we worship. That's why we show up here, is to worship that God and to remember who it is that we're dealing with. Proverbs 19, verses 20 and 21, listen to counsel and accept discipline so that you may be wise for the rest of your days. Many plans are in a man's heart. But the counsel of the Lord will stand. So that sounds like the God who does whatever he wants to do any time he wants to do it is not bothered by or dissuaded from doing what he wants to do because people don't agree or because people have other plans. Mm -hmm. Me personally, I'm old enough now to recognize that whenever my plans don't go the way I think they ought to go, that that's usually what's really good for me. Every time I've made a plan, every time I've attempted to do something in my life, I messed it up. I've made a real hash of this life. And yet God faithfully, sovereignly has overridden my will time and time again. And I would just like to say, thank God for not leaving it up to me. Yes. Isaiah 43, you should know this. Isaiah 43, starting at verse 10, says, You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Even from eternity I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? That's God speaking for himself 
declaring his own absolute sovereignty and saying, once I decide to do something, who's going to stop me? Mm. Remember that? I mean, that's the God of the Bible. That's the only God you find in the Bible. There is no other God. And he says it right here. I am he. I am the only one. There is no other God. There's only me, the one who declares the end from the beginning. There's only me, the God who is. And all the other gods, all the other pretend gods are not. And I act. And who can reverse it? Or Isaiah 45 The first seven verses say, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. You may recall that Cyrus was a Persian king who didn't know God. And in fact, God says that. You don't know me, and yet I'm going to use you for the good of my people. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by my right hand to subdue nations before him. And to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and I will make the rough places smooth and I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron bars and I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant. And Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord. Here comes God again, introducing himself to Cyrus, who doesn't know him. I am Yahweh. There is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. So that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there's no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the one who forms the light. I'm the one who creates darkness. I cause well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So now we know that God is sovereign everywhere. He already said that. In the heavens, on the earth, in the deeps, in the seas. God's sovereign everywhere. And what does he do in his sovereignty everywhere? Everything. From the casting of lots all the way to bringing down kingdoms. And he declares, I'm the God who does all these things. I make light, I make darkness. I'm the one who creates these blessings, and I create calamity in your life. In other words, he does everything. There's nothing you can name. There's nothing you can point at where you can say, well, yeah, God's in control of everything except that. Except this one little corner of my life. Except this one political thing going on in our country. God is sovereign over absolutely everything. And he says so. Remember? You should know this. I'm just reminding us of what we should already know. Lamentations 3, Jeremiah writing. He says, who is there who speaks and then it comes to pass? Unless the Lord commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth. So now you've got a couple of prophets of God who have now said, 
that it is God who brings blessing and favor, and it's God who brings calamity and difficulty in your life. And if you know that, by the way, if you know it's the hand of a sovereign God who is bringing the calamity and the difficulty and the darkness into your life, that will give you the strength to endure the tough times. I'm willing to say, let's see how many of you feel the same way, I'm willing to say that 2021 was a tough year. Amen. Anybody else? I mean, it was a tough year for everybody. Why was it a tough year? Because that's what God determined. God decided it was going to be a tough year, and it was. Because he is in the process, yet again, of doing sovereignly whatever he's pleased to do. If the end result of all this is that he's kind of winnowing out the church or causing people to rest in him, to have faith in him, to trust him, even through the difficult times, if the end result of that is that we increase in our faith, which becomes the trading commodity for righteousness in heaven, if he's doing all that, it's ultimately resulting in our collective good because God in his sovereignty knows exactly what he's doing. Yes, sir. Honestly, this year, he's given me so many blessings, and I am forever grateful for that, and that's in his glory as well. While I understand that for many people it was a tough year, there are some people out there like me who took this year for growth. I'm very grateful for what he's done, and I know that. And isn't that remarkable? You're kind of making my point. Yeah. Which is even though it's been a remarkably difficult year, Look at how good God has been to us. Yes. That's why I keep saying, we're still here. Mm. A couple of years into the whole COVID church shutdown thing, we're still here. We're still worshiping God. He's still providing for us. I know you've had that cold. I know many people. I keep calling it a cold. People ask me the virus that I had last week. People keep saying, did you get tested? No, I didn't mostly because I don't care and because I trust that when the Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made that the Bible actually means that and I actually do have an immune system that allowed me to get better. So yeah, I had it. Yeah, Tom had it. Yeah, several people in the room have had it and then we got better. And even though I say that kind of flippantly, it's the remarkable grace of God that is the reason that Tom's better Amen. and that I'm better because God preserves his people. So even in the midst of the hardship, remember that it is God who's sovereignly bringing the hardship, but he hasn't abandoned you in the hardship. Instead, what Paul writes is, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will with the temptation Provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So even in the midst of the hardship that God brought, God faithfully takes his people through the hardship in order to produce the end result that he intended from the very beginning. So I agree with you. It was a tough year and a very blessed year. I'm sure the new parents would agree. Tough year, but blessed year. Here's something you'll all remember. Remember Nebuchadnezzar talking in Daniel 4. His words are recorded. 
Here again, another declaration of absolute sovereignty. At the end of that period of madness, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and I honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does, according to his will, in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stop his hand, and no one can say, what are you doing? You should know that passage. You've heard that passage. Remember that? Yes. yes. Because that's how God represents himself. I'm going somewhere. I'm building a case. <laughs> At the moment, I'm building the case for God's absolute sovereignty. And I'm just trying to demonstrate that the only God that you find in the Bible is a God who keeps saying, I do whatever I want to do. Whatever I'm pleased to do, that's what I do. And your thoughts and your opinions on the matter just don't count. God does whatever he wants to do. Only God's intention actually matters because he's sovereign. So he sees, and this is where it gets a little more worrisome for us human beings, because he is absolutely sovereign and because he is everywhere at once and because he knows everything, because he's that sovereign, he sees and he knows what goes on in our lives, in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our minds. He knows us intimately. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And in his absolute sovereignty, what he knows about us is that we're no good. <laughs> Here, the Bible will tell us that. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, you know this. You've grown up hearing this, hopefully. The heart is deceitful more than everything else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give every person according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Okay, God in his absolute sovereignty knows everything that's going on inside you, everything you think, everything you do, the intentions of your heart. He knows all of that, and what he knows about you is that you're corrupt and that you're sinful, and he knows your heart is desperately wicked. And he knows your heart better than you know your heart. In his sovereignty, then, that's really bad news for the whole rest of the world that is not counting on his redemptive grace. We're getting to the grace part. I'm just establishing the sovereignty part right now, and we're working our way toward the grace part. Genesis 6, 5 says, When the Lord looked down on the people of earth, the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continuously. You've heard that before, right? God's sovereign, and men are wicked. Remember that? Or how about Psalm 33? I'm going to start reading at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, because he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. 
the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart stand from generation to generation. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, Yahweh. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. And from his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. And he who fashioned the heart of them all understands all their works. Okay, so so far what we're reading is we're no good. And God knows us sovereignly and intimately and knows how no good we are. Mm. So his absolute sovereignty also means there's no escaping his judgment. He knows what you're like. He knows what you're made up of. And he knows the wickedness of your heart because he made your heart. Mm -hmm. He made your body. He knows you're just dust. And because he knows that, he knows the wickedness of you, especially in comparison to his holiness. Or how about Job? Let's see if you remember this. Again, I'm just telling you stuff you really ought to know. You should remember all of this. But I'm just trying to put us in mind of it as we go into 2022. Job chapter 40, starting at verse 6. The Lord answered Job out of the storm. And he said, now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, you will instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowing of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make them low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble them and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust altogether. Bind them in the hidden places. And once you do all that, once you demonstrate you can do all these things that only God can do, then I will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. That's in the oldest book of the Bible. That's back in the book of Job. God saying to human beings, look, you can't save you. You can't help you. I know how wicked you are. I know the intentions of your heart. I know the filthiness of your mind. I know the corruption of your flesh. And you think you're going to save you? You think you're the solution to your problem? I'm sovereign God. I do whatever I please. I stand in righteous judgment. And the only hope you could possibly have is me. Because you can't save you. Can you feel the grace part coming on? Knowing that God is absolutely sovereign is really more than just an intellectual or theological exercise. The result of that kind of sovereignty is that he can and that he does redeem people and justify anyone he chooses because he does all his own good pleasure. So this is where sovereignty and grace meet each other. Because the great claim of Christianity, the beauty of Christianity, 
is that it says, despite your wickedness, despite the evil of your heart and mind, you can be forgiven. Mm. Stunning. Remarkable. You can be eternally forgiven. But that forgiveness depends on sovereignty. If you don't understand the sovereignty of God, the way that it is demonstrated in the Bible, and I only just touched on a couple of verses to demonstrate the sovereignty of God, there is so much said, I I didn't even get out of the Old Testament, there's so much said in the Bible about God's absolute, complete sovereignty and his ability to do whatever he wants to do in everything that he has made, and if you don't understand that, you cannot conceive of biblical Forgiveness. Here's what I mean. Jesus walked around saying things like, your sins are forgiven. How does he get to say that? Does it help you at all, Thaddeus, if I say to you, me personally, Jim, I, I forgive all your sins. No, that means nothing. You grinned at me, and that's the right thing to do, because I got, I got nothing. I can't die for your sins. I can't pay for your sins. And I cannot declare you forgiven. Here's what I'm driving at. Forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, eternal forgiveness, is the result of declarations by sovereign God. He declares you righteous. He declares you spotless unblemished. He declares you saved and forgiven. And it's not because of you and it's not because of what you do. It's because of the declaration of the one who can do whatever he wants to do. And part of what he wants to do is save some people, which means forgiveness is based on and dependent on the sovereignty of God. If you don't understand his sovereignty, you don't understand forgiveness. Because the one who can make everything and do everything and do all his good pleasure is the one who can look at Thaddeus and say, you're forgiven, and it means something. And it means eternally he's forgiven because it's the sovereign one who forgave him. When Jesus walked around on the planet saying to people, you're forgiven... He could say that because he had the sovereign authority to say that. He had the sovereign authority to say to blind people, you can see. He could say to people who couldn't walk, get up and walk, carry your bed, go. How could he say those things? I can't say those things. I could say them, but they're not going to be effective. I can't make those things happen because I don't have the power And all authority in heaven and earth resides in Jesus Christ. He said so. And therefore, he has the sovereign ability to declare things that are not as if they were. And therefore, he can say to people, you're forgiven. And they are. That's why he could say to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because he had the authority to say that. He has the sovereign ability to say that. And if that God, if that Jesus ever said to you, 
that he forgives you and that he's doing it out of kindness and he's doing it out of love and he's doing it out of grace. He's doing it on the basis of his absolute sovereign ability to be kind to you, to be gracious to you, to be loving to you. It is his sovereignty that is the foundation of your eternal forgiveness. That's sovereign grace. Psalm 32. Let me remind you of this. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. I could stop right there. I could have just stood up here and said that and we could all go home. Because how truly blessed, how fortunate is the declaration from God that our transgressions, our sins, our rebellions against him are forgiven. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Okay, I've been picking on you so far, and so you'll never come here again. But So what are you going to do? What am I going to do? What are any of us going to do about our iniquity? It's too late for me. I can't clean up my life. I can't be good long enough to make up for how many years I've been bad. I can't fix me. I am not the solution. God has already said that there's no way that he will ever declare that my own right hand can save me. And so what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do about the fact that you are sinful, that you have rebelled? Blessed is the man to whom the Lord sees all that, knows all that, is sovereign over all that, recognizes all that sinfulness, and then doesn't impute it to you. That's remarkable. Mm -hmm. He takes all that stuff, all that rebellion against him, all that sinfulness, he takes all of that and says, yeah, you're guilty, you did it, and I'm not going to hold it against you, and I'm not going to impute it to your account. Instead, I'm going to impute the righteousness of my son to you. And I'm going to do it by declaring it because I'm the God who gets to do whatever I want to do all the time. And because he's the God who does whatever he wants to do, he can say, I'm putting my everlasting love on you and I'm not going to impute your sin against you. Praise God. Have you ever heard such good news? I'm just reminding you of what I hope you remember through 2022 now and through the rest of your life, that the reason that you worship and praise a sovereign God is because he has been sovereignly gracious to you. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, David's going to describe what he means by that phrase, in whom there is no deceit. If you try to justify yourself before God, if you could stand before God and say something on the order of, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, look, there's always this guy. I'm not Hitler. You know, there's always somebody worse than me. 
If you try to justify yourself, or if you say that you don't have any sin, then you are full of deceit. You're full of lying, and you're lying to yourself, and you're lying to God. And so David could say, a man whose sins are forgiven is a man in whom there is no deceit because he will admit to his sinfulness. When I kept silent about my sin, says verse 3, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, God, was heavy against me, and my vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. And then he adds the word selah. Think of that. Ponder that. Think about the fact that you cannot justify yourself before God. If you do, you're lying. You're full of deceit, and God will be heavy against you. Think about that. But then verse 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And again, he says, think of that. Think of that. The human tendency, the egocentric human tendency is to justify yourself. We do it immediately. You're going to find that out very soon. I'm sure Kenneth can testify that children know how to justify themselves instantly. As soon as you go into a room and there's a broken line, I didn't do it. He did it. Someone else did it. It wasn't me. You don't have to teach people how to self-justify. They just know. And so David says, if God loves you, if God in his sovereignty is drawing you to himself, he will lean heavily on you. He will lean against you. He will make it difficult in your body as you continue to try to self-justify, lie to yourself, lie to God, and say, I'm not really that bad. Rather, you go to God and you say, I admit it. Everything you've said about me is correct. Everything you've said about my sinfulness is accurate. It's in my heart. It's in my mind. It's in my flesh. I'm nothing but depravity continually. I admit that, and that's what makes it so wonderful when you get to the point where David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave me for all of that. So, based on that, I would say, knowing the sovereign grace and the sovereign mercy of God, go to him immediately and admit to your sinfulness. Even John picks it up in the New Testament. And says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. You cannot justify yourself. Instead, you admit that you are completely and utterly dependent on the sovereign mercy and grace of a God who can forgive you with a declaration. And that there's nothing too small for that God. And there's nothing too large for that God. And there's nothing too sinful for that God to purify, to clean up. Sovereign mercy. Back in the book of Exodus, you'll remember this. Moses, 
up on the mountain talking to God. And the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 33, I'll do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Well, first he said, you couldn't see my glory. It would kill you. But here's what I'll do for you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you, and then I'll remove my hand just as the last trails of my glory are are vanishing away so that you can see that, so you can get some glimpse of my glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. There's sovereignty and grace combined right there. God says, I'll do whatever I want to do. I'll show mercy to whoever I want to show mercy to. I'll be compassionate to whoever I want to be compassionate to. That's absolute sovereignty. And yet in his sovereignty, he chooses to be merciful. He chooses to be compassionate to some people. And that's grace. And it is the sovereignty of God that results in the grace and forgiveness and mercy and compassion of God. In Romans 9, Paul picks that up and writes about it. You can go read it for yourself, but Paul will quote it and then draw from it a theology. Here, I'll read a little piece of it. Here in Romans 9, there is no injustice with God, is there? May that never be, because he said to Moses... I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I'm going to have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and so that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then Paul concludes, he has mercy on whom he desires And he hardens whom he desires. And now we're going to get into the reason for all of this. So far, what have we learned this morning? We've learned God is absolutely sovereign. And we defined it as that means he does whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, with whoever he wants to do it. We know that in his sovereignty, he made us, he formed us, and therefore he knows us. And he knows our wickedness. And he knows our depravity and our sinfulness. But then we also saw that in his sovereignty, there is forgiveness because he who spoke the worlds into existence can also declare forgiveness and declare righteousness and impute purity to you despite the fact that you yourself have not been able to fix yourself or clean yourself up or save yourself. He, by his sovereignty, can save you and forgive you. So why? Why is he doing it all that way? I mean, this is the God who does all his good pleasure. This is the God who can do things any way he wants to do them. Why is he doing them this way? Because Paul says in Romans 9, 18, he's doing all this, having mercy and hardening. Remember, it's the one who makes the light and makes the darkness, who creates blessing and creates hardship. The God who does all these things is doing it all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen. That's why we're here 20 years later, still talking about 
the glory of his grace, his absolute sovereign grace. The reason we're doing it is because we see that God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself, so then we join him in glorifying him. We see that God is doing what he's doing the way he's doing it to the praise of his glorious grace. He is going to be recognized. He's going to be worshipped through all of eternity as being the gracious God who is also the great eternal judge who does whatever he wants to do all the time. And therefore, he is also kind and gracious to some people who just don't deserve it. And don't start thinking that you do deserve it because you don't. Because it's grace. And in order to be grace, Paul argues... It can't be because of your works. That would be a debt. And God is not indebted to you. Instead, he is showing you remarkable sovereign grace. I'm going to read from 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 8. 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and his grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. So we're supposed to accept the suffering that comes at the hands of God. We're supposed to accept the difficulty knowing that he has not abandoned us and knowing that the purpose for which we exist, the purpose for which the Bible exists, the purpose for which Paul was called, the purpose of the gospel ministry, the purpose of the church, the purpose of the reason why we are out here proclaiming this over and over again is because of the glory of God's grace, which was manifested and demonstrated in the fact that he sent his son to planet Earth. You're going to remember this. This is Ephesians 1. I'm starting at verse 3. Just listen to the language. I know you've heard it. You should know it. You should probably have it memorized. But listen to it again. Let it resonate in your ears and in your heart. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, so that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. How many times now has Paul said that? That's why God's doing it the way he's doing it, 
to ultimately glorify himself and bring praise to himself. And we're going to praise him for all of eternity because of the great glory of his grace and the kind intention of his will, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in Christ. And in him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. He's forgiving us. He's declaring us innocent and forgiving us of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. He didn't just give us a little bit of grace. If you're anything like me, and I hope to God you're not, you know that it's not going to take just a little tiny bit of grace to forgive somebody as wicked as you. It's going to take lavishing grace. And God pours out his grace on us. He doesn't just give us his grace in small little morsels or small little bits. He is abundantly, eternally generous to us in his grace. Can you see now why the purpose is to the glory of his grace? We're here to worship and praise his glorious grace. That's why he's doing things the way he's doing it. And he has poured that grace on us abundantly. He has lavished it on us. And in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. According to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, and that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things in the earth, and in him also we have obtained this inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Where did we start today? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he's pleased to do. Paul wraps up by saying, we are saved because he's the God who does whatever he wants to do. That's sovereign grace. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That's why we exist. That's his purpose. That's his plan. That's what's going to happen for all of eternity. We might as well start now. Mm. Worshiping and praising the God who in his glorious grace would save wretches like us. So that he gets all the glory and none of it belongs to us. And yet, by astounding, amazing grace, he's going to allow us to be a part of his eternal kingdom to be joint heirs with Christ through all of eternity. The grace just keeps coming. Can you see why it's lavishing grace? It's so much more than just forgiveness. It's this onslaught of grace. This nonstop pouring of grace coming at us. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Ephesians 2 then says, I just got to read this. You were, you, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins 
in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, notice the contrast. You're wicked. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's everything I've been trying to say this morning. The reason that God has done things the way he has done it is so that when he wraps it all up, it's going to show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast because we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Remember that? Yes. Don't forget it. Because if 2022 is anything like 2021 or 2020, or pretty much any year that there were human beings on planet Earth, the tendency is going to be to forget. The tendency is going to be to start thinking, where's God in all this? The tendency is going to be to start self-justifying because you do it naturally. The tendency is going to be to forget to worship the God who does everything according to his own good pleasure. So don't forget it. Hold on to it. Don't let it slip away. It's why we keep showing up here. And it's why I keep saying the same things over and over and over again. I've been saying this half my life now. And I'm happy to stand here the rest of my life and say it to you again and again and again. And remind you over and over again. Because I haven't said anything to you today that you didn't already know. And didn't it sound good to hear it again? Yes. It's remarkable. Okay, so let's finish with Romans 8. You knew I had to go to Romans 8, 28. You know it. You could recite it. It should be tattooed to your memory. The God who does everything according to his own good pleasure, Romans 8, 28 starts, and we know that God causes all things. Remember, he's the God who makes light. He's the God who makes dark. He's the God who brings blessings. He's the God who brings about calamity. He's the God who says, I do all these things. I do all my good pleasure in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. I'm the God who does whatever I want to do all the time. And Paul says, we know that God causes all these things that he's doing He's the God that does everything. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. 
Now notice he did not say, he causes all things to work together for good for absolutely everybody. No, there's judgment awaiting the people who do not know the sovereignty and the grace and the kindness of God. No one's going to stand before God and self-justify, and yet there's a great many people who think they're going to do that, and there's a great many religions in the world who are teaching people to do that. We are dependent on absolute sovereign grace, and we know that God causes all the things he does to work together for good to those who love God. And who are those who love God? To those who are called according to his purpose. So again, it's God's plan. It's God's purpose. And in his purpose, as he's busy doing whatever he pleases, he has chosen some people because that's what he decided to do. And to those people, he put out what we refer to as the effectual call. The same way that Jesus could walk up to people and say, follow me, and they would leave their father, put down their nets, and follow him. That's an effective call. And at some point in your life, he came to you and said, follow me. And you didn't have a choice in the matter. Oh, you may have risen up in your flesh, and you may have resisted initially, but, oh, yeah, he's the sovereign one. He's the one who has all the power. Therefore, when he said follow, you're following. That's why we're still here. Because we're still following, because we're still worshiping that God who fortunately doesn't give up on us, doesn't let us go. That God who is worth all of our life, all of our praise, all of the honor and the glory. That God called certain people to himself, and those people end up loving him, and for those people, whatever it is he does, he does it for their ultimate good. That includes calamity. That includes the darkness. That includes the deep. But it's all for your ultimate good. That's sovereignty and grace. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And those are the very same people who he foreknew, the people who he determined before the foundation of the world and had relationship with. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that he... Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren and those that he called those that he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son those whom he predestined those are the ones that he called that's why we follow because he has called us and these whom he called he also justified and how did he justify you not by making you good and making you do better he justified you by declaring you as spotless and unblemished. And because he has the sovereign authority to do it, thank God he did it. Amen. And declared you forgiven and justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So let's start 2021 
No, let's start 2022. I want to go back. Let's start 2022 on this declaration of God's absolute sovereignty and his sovereign grace. And then let me ask the same question that Paul wrote right here, because it's an awfully good question. And I hope that you remember this for the rest of your life, all the way out into eternity. Paul asks, what are we going to say then? Knowing all this knowing all the theology of the Bible, knowing everything that I've declared to you yet again, knowing all that, Paul asks, well, then what are we going to say to these things? And his answer is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody can be against us. That's why we're still here. That's why we're still standing up and declaring God's absolute sovereign grace. COVID couldn't shut us down and the government couldn't shut us down. And the trials of this lifetime, the sickness of this lifetime, the the difficulties of this world do not stop the declaration of God's absolute sovereign grace and the gospel of his grace. And why can't it ever be stopped? Because it all redounds to the glory of God, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And because that's his intention and he's sovereign, can't nobody stop it. It's going to keep on going to the end. It's going to keep being declared. He's going to keep being worshipped. And it's all about God being for us. So there's nobody No enemy that can shut us down. Nobody that can stop the declaration of God's absolute sovereign grace. Got it? Got it. So what are we going to do in 2022? The same thing we've done for the last 20 years. Keep declaring the sovereignty and the grace of God. What a God. What a God. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.